Okay, hi, hi everybody. My name is Mike, and I will be your tour guide tonight through the scriptures, hopefully. So come on in. I know it's a great little party out there with the small group tables and sign up. Okay, where are our new friends from New Mexico? Where are they? Right here? Well, hi. Nice to meet you all. And some down here. Okay. I just want to say thank you very much. You guys are really cool. We appreciate it. I don't know what you're expecting, you know, punk rock show, moshing during worship, but yeah, yeah, we're just kind of regular church. It's kind of a letdown, actually, which is why I always say, you know, keep your expectations low and you'll be happy. You're coming to scum. So... It's been a tough week, actually, for me. Um, it's been a tough year in some respects. And it's been tough, honestly. The hardest thing is the uh, number of people that I love dearly who have, who have left scum of the earth. You know, some because they were getting married, some because they were moving to new cities, um, some for not so great reasons. Uh, but, it, but it hurts. I just let you know, not just me, but I would say that anybody who is on pastoral staff, any of the small group leaders, when people leave, it just hurts. And, and you know, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody, if you're thinking about leaving right now. Um, but think about it this way. How else would you have me feel? Should I be excited that you're leaving? Jumping up and down, happy, happy day, day, joy, joy? Or um, should I just be apathetic? Eh, it's okay if you're here, it's okay if you're gone, doesn't matter. See, neither one of those options are any good. The only option you really want is for people to feel sad when you go. And this week, I uh, found out about some more people that I really love and respect who are on their way out. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for pastors um, because if you love people, you kind of want to be with them. You want to see them grow up. You want to see their children uh, grow up. And, and you get robbed of that when they go. Um, you also feel like you've been fired <laughs> as a pastor. Uh, but like I said, how else are you supposed to respond? I think that is the best way is to feel sad. When people leave. Now, I belonged to a church for a while that tried to make sure that that didn't happen. Nearly as often as it does in the Americas. Because in America, it's all about our happiness, right? In fact, we're guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Works great for government. Highly recommend it. So grateful that I belong to a country that has that as one of its founding ideals. Does not work so well in the church. Honestly, that's not a kingdom kind of a thought. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's more like die to yourself, submit to others, and uh, get ready to experience some suffering and sorrow for Jesus. Pick up your cross, follow him. I mean, isn't that the kingdom of God? 
So anyway, so pastors struggle with this. I don't know one who doesn't, unless he or she is so far removed from the day-to-day life of their congregation that they're just a talking head and they don't relate to anybody. TV preachers uh, might miss your, your monthly check. But I joined this church uh, back when I was about your age. Uh, I was in my uh, latter 20s, uh, just had my first baby uh, with my lovely wife, Mary, and we uh, were moving back to the town we had come from, and there was a, a church that promised discipleship, heavy-duty discipleship. As a matter of fact, there wasn't going to be one person in that church who didn't have his or her own personal shepherd. And that sounded good because my marriage was in trouble, kind of needed somebody to help show me how to be a good husband, how to be a good father of a newborn. I needed somebody to take me under his wing and show me what it meant to be a man of God. And so there was a lot of really great things that I was hoping and expecting, and actually that were delivered as a result of going to this church that focused so heavily on discipleship. I remember, though, there were some costs involved. And one of the costs that were involved is to submit to the authority of the church. I mean, you literally kind of struck a deal with the pastors when you came that you weren't going to leave without their permission. And of course, I was hoping to go back on Young Life staff, and the cost for me was to give that up. I remember distinctly them saying something that is now a bit ironic. Mike, we can't disciple you effectively if all of a sudden you're offered a job with Young Life staff in Colorado and you take off. I thought long and hard. I prayed long and hard about it. I decided that what I needed was discipling more than I needed my own preferences. So I struck that deal. And I've got to say, as I look back, there are so many things that I am grateful to that church for. Really. I I don't think it would be a stretch to say it probably saved my marriage. I don't think that I would have been the kind of man who understood biblical authority the way I do if I hadn't made that decision up front to submit to my overseers and to try and make their life more easy. There's a respect, I think, that I have for for the clergy that I, I, I wouldn't give up. I, I think that there's some of the deepest relationships that I've had with other men, even with other couples that came out of that eight-year period in my life when I was 
at that church. There were some cons. The church was more of, uh, they were more marchers. I was more of a dancer. Um, they liked to, you know, march in single file and in columns and rows, and I would like to weave all around the place. I used to lead worship. You know, pastors normally have problems with the worship leaders. The old joke is, is that when Satan fell, he fell into the worship team. Um, because senior pastors and worship leaders have this sometime friction going on because the worship leaders want to go in one direction or too far in another direction, and the pastors are trying to hold, hold them back. Well, you know, imagine me as a worship leader, and I was doing things. It seemed to me quite regularly that I was getting reprimanded for going too far in this direction or that. And... Um, <laughs> I really wanted to ascend the hierarchy. I really wanted to go up the ladder of, of uh, ecclesiastical authority. I wanted to become a shepherd. I wanted to become a pastor. I just transferred all my desires for Young Life staff onto that church. But I could never quite get it right. I just wasn't, you know, a good enough disciple. I was like the black sheep of the flock. I mean, the guy who was actually discipling me, my own shepherd, tried to re-relate me to somebody else at least two times, saying, Mike, I just don't think, you know, I mean, we're not, you're not quite getting it. So I didn't ascend the ladder of authority very much at all. <laughs> um, and that was a lesson for me to learn there as well. For some people... It became oppressive. I mean, the same thing that kept one... I never forget this one time. This one guy, uh, I loved him. For him, it was a great thing. He was the divorced guy. We had gone to a church conference. He met this divorced woman. They fell madly, passionately in love. They would have been in the sack in the first two weeks had the church uh, pastors not come around him and said, okay, this is how you're going to conduct yourself, how you're going to conduct yourself in this relationship with this woman. And this guy was chafing at the bit, didn't want to do it, just couldn't stand the fact that there were, you know, men of God looking over his shoulder when he wanted to be with the woman he truly loved. But honestly, I, I saw it work so well, you know, that they had a courtship that was good and, and they got to know each other, went through some counseling and finally got married. I, I saw one guy who was divorced. I saw his wife come back around the, come, come around the church. Now, she had never been to church before. He was so glad to get rid of her uh, in their divorce. And all of a sudden, she's showing up at church. And he, I used to sit next to him in church. He would scowl. Like, oh, she's here. Ugh, she's, I think she likes me again. I just can't go back there, Mike. It was so terrible. And, of course, then the pastors of the church came around him and said, Brother, we think God may be doing something to restore your marriage. Last thing he wanted to hear. But because he had made this commitment, like I had, he, he actually submitted himself to the pastoral authority and opened himself up to the possibility that maybe God was restoring his family, his wife and his daughter, and he back together again. And so Mary and I got to go to their remarriage. Their little girl was a flower girl. They had two more kids. They're still married. It's awesome. 
The flip side is that guys like me never get to go on Young Life staff in Colorado. That other guys are feeling like their lives are being maneuvered from above. One girl wanted to go to some high school prom at a secular school with a secular boy, and her single mom didn't know what to do, so she asked her shepherd, and her shepherd didn't know what to do, so he asked his shepherd, and then his shepherd didn't know what to do, so they asked his shepherd. It's going like three tiers up the hierarchy about whether this girl can go to prom or not. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. All because... They were trying to make the church one body, moving as one person, doing the kinds of things that we're going to read about in the Scripture tonight. And so if you've got a Bible, please open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're just getting into the first part of chapter 2. I'm calling this sermon, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Should I stay or should I go? If I leave, it will be trouble. If I stay, it might be double. Anyway, um, which is probably the case with me. (laughs) They probably should have let me go. (laughs) More on that later. Philippians chapter 2. Remember, this is a context of suffering. Paul is in prison. The Philippians are beginning to experience some kind of persecution. That's the context of what we're doing. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's all we have tonight. Four verses. Let me read it again. Therefore, that therefore is connecting this passage to what Jesse was talking about last week. If you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. This is a giant if-then statement. He's assuming something. The Greek word if can be translated since as well as if. Since you have encouragement, since you have Comfort, since you have a common sharing in the Spirit, since you have tenderness and compassion, then, and this is the idea, if that, if you've received that from Jesus, if you've received that from being with one another, because the original Greek leads you to believe he's not just talking about the vertical relationship, but also the horizontal relationship as well. If you have those things, then... Do me a favor. If you've experienced these wonderful things in Christ and in Christ's body, then do me a favor. It's a pastoral plea. He's trying to say, look, make my life a bit sweeter, please. Do it for me. Paul, the founder of your church, the one 
who suffered for you, who was in jail for you, who was beaten for you, and even now is in prison. Do it for me. And what does he want? He wants them as a body, as an individual church, the Philippian church, to go to the next level when it comes to being the church. If you've got all these wonderful things from the Spirit of God and from being with one another, then take it to the next level, and this is the next level. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Literally having the same mind. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and of one mind. Oh my gosh. Isn't this what every church leader wants? Is the people that he cares for to be like a family that's loving each other? Don't we all want that? We do. We do. Being of the same mind. But how are you going to get there? How are you going to do that? What's the formula? How does that happen? Is some kind of top-down, heavy authority structure do things the way we say to do them? Is that what Paul's going to suggest? Is he going to say, I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about your thoughts. I don't care about your experience. Just submit, dang it. Just submit. That's not what he says. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. He's saying that the kind of unity he desires among the Philippians is the kind of unity that comes from inside of your own heart, by having love for one another. I'll use this phrase. By being one another's soulmates. I hate the word soulmate when it comes to marriages, just so you know. I love it in terms of a church. Have the same mind. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. He doesn't think that we're a bunch of automatons walking lockstep with each other like some kind of Nazi war movie. He's saying, rather... I want this to be a dance, a choreographed by the Holy Spirit dance where you defer to the people you are with. You let them do si right on by because you love them. Give them center stage. Put them in the middle of the circle at the wedding rehearsal. Let them dance their minds and bodies out. Have a great time. Let it be choreographed 
by the Holy Spirit. Let it come from inside of you. And how do you do that? You do that by preferring the people who are sitting next to you to yourselves. That their interests, their goals, their needs, their desires are more important than yours. And that's the only way, Paul said, it's going to work. This choreographed dance where the whole church is like one of those movie scenes, like the sound of music. Remember the sound of music? And all those couples are twirling and dancing on the big ballroom floor. And you're thinking, man, how do they do that? This has got to be choreographed. Well, in the movie it probably is. But in the church, it just comes from flowing with the Holy Spirit. And how do you know what the Holy Spirit's doing? By preferring others to yourself. Here's a quote that I love. It's from a guy named Frank Thielman, a Bible commentator. And he says this, it should be up there. If we are to put the interest of others ahead of our own, we must relinquish the fascination with personalities, including our own, and get busy with the unimpressive task of helping our brothers and sisters at their points of need. If we are to put the interest of others ahead of our own, we must relinquish the fascination with personalities, including our own, and get busy with the unimpressive task of helping our brothers and sisters at their points of need. Here's an application point. So just because there's a new church down the block that has the fancy light show during worship, that has the exciting, good-looking preacher, that has the bright and shiny children's program, you don't automatically Pick up your roots and waltz over there without seriously considering where the Holy Spirit is leading you. By the same token, the positives of scum of the earth, as few as they might be, should not be the primary reason that you're here. But rather, while you are here, be part of the community of scum and be part of the mission of scum. The people sitting around you. <sighs> I'm going to finish that story. So eight years go by, I'm in this heavy discipleship church. I know the rules. After a while, I can't take it anymore. I, I, I remember thinking to myself, why is it the men who are over me in authority make me feel terrible and like less of a follower of Jesus? And it's my peer brothers who make me feel like I'm worth something. I was a man desperately in search of uh, following God. I believed I was called to ministry. I started a college ministry. 
at the University of Toledo. Tried to raise money uh, by getting other churches to help me out, and that didn't work. So I kept working at what I was doing, which was, at that point in my life, uh, selling stickers and um, working at UPS as a package car washer in the evenings. This is after my stint at the steel mill and after I had been a high school English teacher and a coach. I guess you could say I didn't care what I was doing because I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do. So I just did whatever came next. Something that will make me a little bit less unhappy than the job before. And you know, the guys I knew, not my pastors, were saying, Mike, you should, you know, I really think there's a call on your life. You should probably do something. And, and um, you know, my pastors were silent. In fact, they had made me the youth uh, pastor, director, you know, freebie volunteer for a while and then took it away from me because um, they found somebody who was a little more compliant, I think which is when I went to start the college ministry. And, and that was going okay. I have stories about that. I won't tell you now. But another church in town got wind of this and said, you know, we're trying to start a youth program. We think that Mike Sayers is our guy. And so they contacted me, had an interview, offered me a part-time job, which meant I could quit UPS at night, which was great because I could actually see my family as opposed to going to work every night after I came back from work. And um, I get to fulfill a lifelong desire. That's good. Get to serve Jesus. That's good. But I have this commitment that I had made eight years before. And I prayed about it, and I had people praying for me, and I tell you what I determined, I thought, I'm going to jump ship. Forget about that commitment. I'm just going to go. So I had a meeting with the uh, senior pastor. I'll never forget this. In some ways, it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life. Because we sat down. I started to lay out what was going on in my life before Harold Moe. He's a kind of a new senior pastor. He'd been one of the associates and he was now the senior pastor, and he was handling a lot of, as, well, you know, when you have a church like that with that heavy of an authority structure, there's a lot of problems that just are under the surface. And when the head dude who's kept the lid on everything leaves, they all come bubbling to the surface. It's like the senior pastor was a cork in the champagne bottle, and it was shaking up every time they would do something that was stupid, you know? But he was such an... Uh, uh, a regal, imposing figure that he kept that, that, that fizz all contained in the bottle. And as soon as he left to take, you know, a job somewhere else, start a church up in Canada, I think it was, um, you know, all that stuff came bubbling up. And guess what to deal with it? The new senior pastor, the former associate, Harold. And so I talked to Harold and I tell him what's going on. I'm ready to say... I don't care what you say. I'm going. But I never got a chance. Because Harold looked at me and he said, Mike, I believe God has given you a release. I do think it's time for you to go. 
You should follow that call. You should take that job. You should pastor those kids. It'll be sad for us to see you go. You'll leave a big hole that nobody else can fill. But I do believe it's God's will for your life. And what a feeling of euphoria when I left that meeting. Not only was I following God's call that was in my own life, but I had been given the blessing by my church to go and do the things that God had called me to do. We were dancing in harmony, and it was wonderful, led by the Spirit of God. What does a selfless community look like? That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. I'll tell you other ways it looks. There's a guy here that we called Gothic Sean for some years, and he was a mess. Almost got evicted from apartment because he couldn't keep it clean. He was too drunk to do certain things. Ben Mercer would go and clean his apartment so he wouldn't get evicted. That's what the community of one mind looks like. Tracy Johnson would listen to him for hours and hours and hours on end talk about the same things over and over and over. What's that? And not scream at him. Yes. That's what the caring community looks like. And then sometimes you would scream at him? And then you would scream at him sometimes. Yes, you would. Well, he's, he needed to be screamed at sometimes. But who else does that? Who puts someone else's interests above their own? I've got places to go. I've got people to see. I don't need a half-drunk, half-crazy guy taking up my time. It looks like Mary Pat Sayers babysitting for people's children free of charge every now and then. She's raised her children. She's in that glorious break between raising your children and having grandchildren you have to watch. But she's not preferring herself to others. I didn't tell her I wasn't going to do this, but a few of us were joking around about Katie Jones being Leonore's personal assistant because she's always doing things for Leonore. I don't know where you are, Katie, but not here. But it's amazing to watch the way she helps Leonore, who is busy, busy, busy with... You know, two kids and a husband with a new business and the five iron thing and being on staff here and blah, 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 blah. And Katie's there, you know, it seems like every day helping her out. What I want to say is, is if, if you're waiting for the unity of the church to come and visit you in your apartment, you got the wrong mindset. 
Rather, put somebody else's interests above your own and go and serve that person's needs. I don't know what your talents are. I don't know what your gifts are. I mean, maybe it's just time. I don't know. But you can be a blessing to somebody else. And when you put your interests behind the interests of the people sitting next to you, guess what starts to happen? This choreography of dancing and twirling and the church looks like it's supposed to look like. Not when you're waiting for the church to come and meet your needs. And if you want to leave, get counsel from somebody first. I don't think I've ever told anybody they have to stay yet. Just so you know. Let's face it. Most of you are in your 20s. I know you're in that stage of life where you get a job in some other city, you're going to go to graduate school someplace else, you're going to meet somebody else who goes to a different church, and you're going to start going to that church because that's how the relationship progresses, or yada, yada, yada. It is my lot in life to grieve and mourn your passing, and that's the way you want it. But the attitude should be to lay your life down for the people who are here. Back when I was on staff at Corona Presbyterian Church as a young adult and singles pastor, um, I was the host for the Five Mind Frenzy Bible study. And, you know, it was wonderful being the host for the Five Iron Frenzy Bible Study. I didn't lead it all the time. I hardly led it at all. But they knew I was there, and I was their advocate with the church at large. And after about five years of being there, uh, we got a new senior pastor. A new senior pastor decided that I was not going to be in the future of the church as far as his agenda was concerned. And so I was asked to resign. A lot of you know this. So I resigned. I started looking for other jobs. I got offered a job in Washington, D.C. at a very, very large church with a guy I respect a lot. I would have made a lot of money. It was a really cool church. I had four kids, the first one ready to go to college, and I needed to somehow provide for them. And I thought, you know what? This would meet my needs, needs of my family. We moved to Washington, D.C. I was also offered a job by a Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. Again, a guaranteed salary. Working for a guy that I liked. But I had this problem. My problem was there was this ragtag, five-iron frenzy Bible study group that was thinking about trying to do some kind of outreach, and, and I was part of that whole plan. And I just didn't know if I could leave that. So I went and talked to my mentor about it at the seminary, Dr. James Means. And uh, when I told him the whole story, Dr. Means said, let me share some of my life with you, Mike. 
And so he said this. He goes, you know, 40 years ago when I was hired to be the pastor of Southern Gables Church, I took the job and the church started growing because it was in the right part of Denver in the right time of the decade. People were moving in. We were preaching the gospel and the church grew. Because, but the truth is, Mike, if I hadn't taken that job and they would have hired somebody else, the church would have still have grown because it was in the right part of town, the right time of the decade, and they were preaching the gospel. And then 20 years ago, when the seminary hired me to be its professor of pastoral ministries, if the seminary hadn't hired me, if I hadn't accepted the job, they would have hired somebody else. And maybe that person would have been a better fit for the seminary, would have published more books and been a better instructor. But you know, when I go to the Ukraine, and I teach in that one-room seminary there. Or when I go to Africa and I work with the medical missions team to inoculate babies against disease. When I'm on the plane coming back from either one of those places, I know that nobody is going back there to take my place. And then he just shut up and looked at me. And I couldn't write this in the book, but these are the actual words I was thinking. Damn you. I know exactly what you're doing. You're telling me that if I take the job in Washington, D.C., it'll be great. But if I didn't take the job, surely they would find somebody else to come and take that job, and maybe they might do a better job than me. Or, if I didn't take the job in Philadelphia, surely they would find somebody else to come and take the job. But if I don't stay with that motley, ragtag, 20-something, five-iron frenzy Bible study that wanted to become a church, nobody is going to go back there to take my place. And let me tell you why I took that job. I took that job, which only existed in my head, by the way, <laughs> I took that job because I loved those people and I consciously made a decision for once in my life to do what the Scripture said and put somebody else's interests above my own and even that of my family, trusting that somehow God in His Holy Spirit wisdom would work it all out in the dance that was to follow. So my question is this. How is God calling you to put the interest of others in this church ahead of your own. How is God calling you to put the interests of others in this church? Because Paul was writing to the Philippians, right? And nobody else.
above your own. And if you trust and you follow, then what amazing things might happen as a result. Could this place be of one mind? Could we value others above ourselves? Could we be people of the same love? Soulmates. You answer that question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your your words through the Apostle Paul. They leave us in a, a holy tension. Should we stay or should we go? Let us follow you, no matter where you lead. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.